the question and answer time, Alan, 4 o'clock this afternoon in here. Okay. You'll notice um, on the pages that for the second session of the morning thing, I had a section for your questions. Knowing the way I teach, I didn't think there'd be really time at these sessions. Um, I'm actually trying to take about half again as much material for each session and put it into the hour. Uh, but I hope you're writing down your questions. And I do look forward to being with you at 4 o'clock this afternoon. That will give us a good hour to deal with some of your questions. And I do, I do value them. And I also have appreciated the interaction with you when I've not been asking the children questions, uh, when you've been asking me questions. I value that. I, uh, um, I am first and foremost, as a minister, a pastor. And uh, while I don't have members of our flock in Franklin Square here, I'm glad to have you folks as an extended flock with me. So I value those times with you as I do with our own people. Now, before we read Scripture and pray, some of you have asked for books uh, that deal with this topic and related topics, and of course, there's many, many of them. Let me just mention a few. Um, if we were looking at these books like high-octane gas, uh, the 100% octane racer's car gas would be John Owen's Volume 6. Uh, Banner of Truth has republished the Gould edition of John Owen's writings. There are 16 volumes. Uh, pastors may want to consider getting the whole set, um, but if you don't get the whole set, if you're not a pastor, uh, I would recommend actually three. Uh, the first is volume six on sin and temptation. And frankly, what I'm doing here is uh, a digest of what Owen already did. I've tried to update it a bit and so forth, and uh, I think in some areas uh, fine-tune some of the work with texts and so on. But um, if you want to get the high, the 100% octane on mortification of sin, Owen volume six, first section of about 90 pages is on mortification. Uh, the second section of about 70 pages is on temptation. I don't think as strong a section as the first one. And the whole last, I don't know, three-fifths of that volume is an exposition of Psalm 130. And you really need to, to, by the time you get done mortification, you want to read about Psalm 130. Uh, but I would recommend that for your study, particularly pastors for you. And especially for pastors, uh, volume one, The Divine Glory of Christ. Uh, many men have said, it's, it's slow going, uh, but, but men in the ministry who have worked through that have said it has been transforming in, ter in terms of their view of preaching Christ and preaching the gospel. Owen, volume one, The Divine Glory of Christ. And then a related theme to this, Owen, volume three, on communion with Christ. He's got an excellent section uh, on spiritual mindedness, which is great. So Owen, volume six, Sin and Temptation. Owen, volume one, The Divine Glory of Christ. And Owen, volume three, on communion with God. You can often pick these books up at a used book uh, dealer as well. Sets will get broken up and you can buy the individual volumes at good prices. Also, um, particularly for parents, if you're homeschooling your children, you're wanting to teach your children something about last night's session on the devil, Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan writer, uh, as Owen was, did a volume called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Um, Banner of Truth republished it years ago. They should have been uh, had their wrists slapped. They used a horrible binding for this thing, and uh, it fell apart after you read, read through about half of it. Now, they've redone it, and I, I think the binding should be better. Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I wish someone would take that book... And, uh, and update it a little bit and put it in some of our own lingo because it's a great... It, what he does is he takes just different ways in which the devil works. The devil will bait the hook and how the devil will go after people and how you resist his devices. But that's a, a real classic. So among the Puritan treatments, I recommend those. Now among the more modern uh, treatments, an old one but a great one, excellent for your Bible studies, 
uh, or Sunday school class, Jerry Bridges, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, who works with the Navigators uh, and, is, and is a member of a PCA church in Colorado Springs, uh, Jerry has um, done an excellent job taking the themes of mortification of sin in particular and putting them in very practical ways. He is a very gifted writer at making the Reformed faith clear, practical, applied. Um, his, his, uh, his forte is writing. He's not as great a speaker as he is a writer, but these books are excellent. If you can get Sinclair's Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson's volume, Know Your Christian Life, that has been, re, I think it's been redone with a different title. Does anyone know what the other title of it is? This is, um, this is a great volume dealing with basically taking what we would call the Ordo Salutis and uh, bringing it down to uh, real life for all of us. He deals with being called by God, conviction of sin, born again, faith in Christ, true repentance, justification, sons of God, union with Christ, election, sin's dominion ended, the Christian's conflicts, crucifying sin, perseverance, asleep in Christ, and glorification. Uh, magnificent volume. Again, excellent for studies. Let me read a paragraph of it. In, uh, this is in his chapter on crucifying sin. What then is this killing of sin? It's under putting sin to death, question mark. Uh, what then is this killing of sin? It is the constant battle against sin which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us from Christ. One of the things I love with Dr. Ferguson's material is he always does relate these things to Christ and the gospel in a beautiful way. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. It is the consistent endeavor to do everything in our power to weaken the grip which sin in general and its manifestations in our own lives in particular has. It is not accomplished only by saying no to what is wrong, but by a determined acceptance of all the good and spiritually nourishing disciplines of the gospel. Now listen to his metaphor here. It is by resolutely weeding the garden of the heart and also by planting, watering, and nurturing Christian graces there that putting sin to death will take place. Not only must we slay the noxious weeds of sin, but we must see that the flowers of grace are sucking up the nourishment of the Spirit's presence in our hearts. Only when those hearts are so full of grace will less room exist for sin to breathe and flourish. Now, if you want a book that is full of those rich metaphors and illustrations and good, competent work in the Scriptures, uh, Know Your Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson is excellent. And then one other one. Um, uh, this has uh, gotten a lot of publicity recently. A man named Chris Lundgaard has taken Owen's material and has really popularized it. Um, I, I guess this is, I'd call it regular gas, but it's not the high octane of Owen. Um, but if you want a, a, a kind of a you know, California, New York type approach to dealing with a subject, uh, Lundgaard does it. I'll give you a little uh, section. He's got an interesting, cha I mean, his chapters are fascinating. I wonder what John Owen would say if he heard his, his volume put into things like this. Evil at my elbow, the long arm of the law, the haunted house. Great chapter, the haunted house. Irreconcilable differences, the tricks of the power of sin and how it works, the tricks of the trade, getting carried away, no idle mind, excursus, loving God with all your mind, hooked, maculate conception, the power of sin and what it does, slips sliding away, 
Part four, nailing the lid on sin's coffin. A bone marrow transplant. No easy peace. Lethal faith. Um, you know, I don't think in those categories, you know, but I'm glad for people that do. He's got this cute little illustration in here. He says, um, uh, oh, where is it? I forget that. Yeah. And this is in his chapter on the haunted house. Sin can be like trick birthday candles. I never would have thought of that, but this is cute. You, that's why I love to read things like this. My mind doesn't work like a sin can be like trick birthday candles. You blow them out and smile, thinking that you have your wish. Then your jaw drops as they burst into flames. So, you know, some guys go to seminary to learn to speak like that. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? It's called The Enemy Within. Chris Lundgaard, K-R-I-S. Uh, like old Chris Kringle, K-R-I-S, Lundgaard, L-U-N-D-G-A-A-R-D, The Enemy Within, it's a Presbyterian and Reformed volume. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance that this is the scalpel of this material. This is sobering, searching, probing material today. So I'm just going to warn you of what's coming up. I want you to turn with me your Bibles to Psalm 139. I will be done at this session at about 10.30 as I am to be. I'm going to ask, please, if you could come back, be back here right at quarter till 11. Uh, the, the next section is a bit longer, um, but there's an illustration at the end that's somewhat lengthy, but I, I really must have it in to cement what I'm saying to you in these sessions. Psalm 139. And I will turn the last two verses to uh, a prayer for us. And when you hear of the, um, the wicked enemies that oppose the Lord's people... I want to remind you that your wicked enemies are the world, the flesh, the devil, and sin. Okay? Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all of my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike before you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. 
How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Pages 14 and 15 in your notes, please. Pages 14 and 15. By way of review, mortification of sin, putting sin to death, is not eradication. It is not moral reformation. It is not temperament modification. It is not diversion. It is not getting religion. Mortification is an habitual weakening of sin. It is a constant battle. The word is thanatute. If you, by the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live and it is actual success in putting sin to death. Remember, it will never be perfect in this life. There's always growth, but there's always battle and there are victories. Now, this morning, the first session, I want to give two fundamental rules for the battle. Now, in saying that, while I'm giving them to you who are professed believers in Christ, this is what you would say in dealing with anyone if you were going to use this material even evangelistically, this is where you would begin. You deal with someone who is under the dominating power of reigning sin. This is where you would begin with them. And I would urge you, you may want to consider taking even some of this material in the first part and even using it uh, for evangelistic purposes. Uh, but I'm giving all of this to you because, as you'll find out in just a moment, we need to realize from the Scriptures that even among professed believers there may be people who are deceived and that may include one or more of you in here. And so we ask that the Lord search our hearts. Okay, number one. Two fundamental rules for the battle in sin, with sin. A battle, remember, from the first night session that everyone's involved with. You must be a genuine Christian or you will not be able to truly mortify a single sin. Over against the moralism of our day, the weak Christianity of our day, the non-Christianity that passes as Christianity, this message must ring loud and clear. You must be a genuine Christian or you will not be able to truly mortify a single sin. Remember that there is a doing and an order of doing in everything in life. There's something you do and a way to do it. You build a house, you start with the foundation, right? So there's a doing, building a house, and there's an order. You start with the foundation and you build the house. This is the foundation, okay? What do we mean by a genuine Christian? Look at Romans 9 and verse 6. Romans, the ninth chapter and verse 6.
The Apostle Paul is speaking of something true of Old Testament Israel that is also true of the professing Christian church, the Israel of God in the New Covenant. What do you do with the fact that within the professing Christian church there are those baptized, marked out as saints, parts of the church, and yet they don't live as believers, they depart from the faith? How do you understand that? In Romans 9 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. When this happens, even within the professed number of God's people, the problem is not with the Word of God, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Uh, There are those who are marked out as the Israel of God today, but they are not of Israel. Now, what is it to be of Israel? Look at Acts chapter 8 and verses 21 to 23. We'll go in the back door to get the answer. Acts chapter 8 and verses 21 to 23. Here's an illustration of one who was marked out as part of the Israel of God, Simon Magus, the magician who was baptized with water. And notice the way he's spoken of in Acts 8:21 to verses 23. He was the one who was so enamored of Peter's ability to do miracles. He said, give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He said, I'll even pay you to give me that gift. Incidentally, that's not far removed what happens at many charismatic rallies today. You know, when Benny Hinn tells people that you send him a thousand bucks a month, you'll get to heaven. That's just as crass and wicked and the mark of an unbelieving heart in that man as it is in this man right here. Give me this power also that anyone on whom I may lay, I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. That's roughly translated as your money go to hell with you. Okay? Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now notice what he says about this baptized professed Christian. You have neither part nor portion in this manner, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. That's roughly the equivalent of saying you pray that God might work in your heart to grant you that forgiveness and repentance. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. A professed Christian who is not a genuine Christian because there was a deep fundamental problem with his heart. Notice what he says again. I see that your heart is not right in the sight of God. What is a genuine Christian? In your notes, number one, there is heart conviction the heart is the inmost being Proverbs 4 and verse 23 keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life Proverbs 4 23 Matthew 5 8 blessed are the poor are blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You know what the opposite of that is? If you're not pure in heart, you don't see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles. It is what comes out of the mouth that is from the heart that defiles. For out of the heart proceed murders, adulteries, blasphemies, stealings, and all forms of iniquity out of the heart. Psalm, that's Matthew 15, 18 and following. Psalm 51 and verse 10. Create in me 
a clean heart, O God. The heart is the drivetrain of the mind and the will of the emotions. Genuine Christianity begins with a change of heart. How does that come? And folks, this is where the rubber meets the road for all forms of religion. You see, all other forms of religion say that in some way you can change your own heart. And man loves that. The scriptures say you can't change your heart. You try to give yourself a heart transplant. And you, you are insane if you try to do that. You wouldn't even be able to do it. Well, it's the same way in the spiritual realm. And if you have any doubts about Calvinism, this ought to blast it. You can't, by a choice of your own will, change your heart. It's impossible. It is blasphemous to even suggest it. Only God can change the heart. And that's why we pray for ourselves and for others. I don't understand the anomaly. You know, the, the old paradox is, how can you pray uh, that the Lord give you a new heart if you don't have a new heart to pray that the Lord give you a new heart? I don't know how to answer that. But I know one thing. I know I've got to deal with a heart that becomes cold and ossified too. And at that point, I don't put my theology aside, but I say, Lord, I can't understand it, but I do know you've got to soften my heart. And I do know, parents, you better pray that the Lord give your children new hearts. Don't you trust in their baptism or their catechism or their non-communicant membership or anything else. That's worshiping and serving the creature more than the Creator. You pray, oh God, change the hearts of my children. Now, my belief is that the Lord will fulfill His promises. There's irregularities. When people wonder about these irregularities, I say, look, out in my square foot beds, not as spacious for growing as California, so I've got these four by four foot beds. And I've got tomato plants growing in there. Now there's some weeds that grow as well, but I don't say that's a weed patch. I say it's a tomato patch. And so in the same way, among our covenant children, sometimes there's weeds, but by and large, you expect the good ripe tomatoes. All right? So the heart conviction. Number two, genuine Christianity. Then includes conversion. With a genuine Christianity, there's heart conviction that comes by conversion. Acts 2.37 Peter preaches. And when he preaches, the people aren't brought up into some tremendous mystical high over the work of Christ. They're brought to look in their own heart and say, men and brethren. You know what Peter says? He says, you, by lawless hands, crucify this Christ. And they say, Men and brethren, their hearts were pricked. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Heart conviction. They were cut to the heart. Acts 2.37. Acts 16 and verse 14. Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened to receive the things spoken by the apostle. Acts 16.14. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful. And it is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Most evangelicals don't really believe that. If they did, they wouldn't preach the way they do. And I wonder if some Reformed people really believe that. The heart, deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so what is the antidote to what the Lord says in Jeremiah 17.9, Ezekiel 36 and verse 26? I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh I will do it you don't do it you know these tracts that say you want a new heart well you just pray and ask the Lord Jesus to be your savior and he'll give you a new heart uh-uh, uh-uh. God says I'll give you a new heart and then when you have a new heart you'll look to me in trust and in faith that's conversion look at Romans 2 and verse 29 that previous text Ezekiel 36:26, and now Romans the second chapter in verse 29. 
incidentally for my pastor friends, you want a wonderful way to explain baptism to, in the right view of the church to our Baptist friends? You can read Romans 2, 25 to 29. Do it, say, let me do it twice. Let me read it this way first. For circumcision, Romans 2, 25, is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcisions become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, Romans 2, 26, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision, that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And your friendly local Baptist friend will say, that's nice, that's what the Bible says, so what? And say, well, let's read it again, okay? Let's start at verse 25 and allow me some gospel liberties here. For baptism is indeed profitable if you believe the gospel. But if you are disobedient to the gospel, and that is New Testament language, your baptism has become unbaptism. Therefore, if an unbaptized person obeys the gospel, will not his unbaptism be counted as baptism? And will not the physically unbaptized, if he believes the gospel, judge you who even with your written code and baptism are disobedient to the gospel? For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly nor is baptism that which is outward on the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And baptism is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's not abusing the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. There must be a conversion, a change of heart. Now, there's different gates to the heart. Your children hopefully see the gospel in you, and that becomes a gate to the heart. In most cases, by God's order, the ear is the gate to the heart. It is by the hearing of the gospel that people hear of Christ and are saved. The head is a gate to the gospel. People think about the things given in the scriptures, all right? But the point is the gospel must come to convert a person to be a genuine Christian. Number three, a genuine Christian is one who leans his whole person on a whole Christ. True Christianity is the leaning of a whole person on a whole Christ. So the language of the Scriptures is a believing into Christ. If you'll allow the expression, it is an immersion into Christ. But baptism is not an immersion into water. It is a full absorbed being overwhelmed into Christ. It is a union with Christ. Galatians 6 and verse 14. Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus by whom the world crucified to me and I to the world. For a genuine Christian, one who leans his whole person on a whole Christ, the death of Christ is the death of his sin. 
And I have strained to try to figure some way to illustrate that. I'll give you one in a moment. It's the best I've got for right now. But the Bible teaches when you are in Christ, you lean your whole person on a whole Christ. That identifies you as one who's dead in Christ. But the glory is this union with Christ who's raised from the dead. And so your life is His resurrection life. That is the glory of the new birth. Paul could say, you know that power that on the third day raised the Lord Jesus from the dead? That's not just something that happened in the past. It happens right now when God takes a hold of a dead sinner and raises him or her to life. That very same power that raised Christ from the dead works in His people. Let me give you what I think is, at least for me anyway, the most best, I know it's the best illustration, but it's helped me. I, uh, like many people back in the, in the 70s, was uh, fascinated with the war of the Afghan freedom fighters against the communists who sought unsuccessfully, thankfully, to take them older, over. Uh, the Afghan freedom fighters were legendary over the centuries for their uh, down and dirty, uh, amazing defenses of their land. And do you know the secret of the Afghan freedom fighters fighting and winning even when all of the odds were against them? The Afghan freedom fighters would say, when we go to battle, we go as those who have died already. That meant something to them. Because of their identity with their nation, they would say, we regarded ourselves as already dead for the life of our country. And they were to fight amazing victories. Now, that's a national identification with something that ultimately is meaningless. But boy, that point's a good one. I died already in Christ. I'm dead to Him. And so the world, a stinky corpse to me, an eye to the world. The leaning of a whole person on a whole Christ is the mark of the genuine Christian. In the fourth place, there's a renewal of the whole person after the image of Christ by the Spirit. In a genuine Christian, beginning with a heart, then conversion, true faith, a leaning of the whole person on a whole Christ. And incidentally, signing on the dotted line on a decision card is not the leaning of the whole person on a whole Christ. The mental assent to a few propositions on a paper is not the resting of a body on Christ. Thomas Chalmers, who was a great Scottish pastor, who converted a bit later in his own life, learned what it was to teach conversion to people who were formalists in their religion. And one of the most memorable illustrations I've ever heard of what this is, Chalmers had been with a dear elderly woman who was near to her own death, and she struggled with what it meant that the Christian faith is a resting on Christ. And Chalmers was a brilliant man, sought to explain this to her, and got nowhere with it. He was very discouraged. And as he left the home, he knew that this woman was a yet in an unconverted state. She was wrestling with her works, with her tradition, with her customs, with her pattern, blurring of all of these things. She couldn't grasp what it was to rest her whole soul on Christ. And as Chalmers was leaving her home, he was walking and there was a brook with a little old rickety bridge that was there. And Chalmers got an idea. As he looked at the bridge, he kind of he walked around to see if there was some other way he could get across. And he looked over here and he realized that there wasn't any way he could get across. And he, he got to the bridge and Chalmers could be very dramatic. And he, he walked on the bridge and kind of put his foot down a bit. And he came back and he looked like he was afraid. And the lady, of course, was out there. You know, they were one, one, don't want the pastor to fall in the river. And she was watching him and wondering what it was. And he did this for some time. Just he was afraid to put his whole weight on the bridge. And finally, at one point, the lady said, with a Scottish brogue that I won't try to imitate, she said, Pastor, lip at the bridge, which was the Scottish term for put your whole weight on the bridge. 
you won't fall in. Lip at the bridge. And Chalmers turned around and said to her, Lip at Jesus. Lip at Jesus. Your whole soul rests on Christ. And for that she was converted. The Lord used that, see, to let her realize there's a resting of one afraid of falling on Christ alone. Okay? And the renewal of the whole person after the image of Christ by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Lord the Spirit. Not naturally, but there's a supernatural change in all of our lives. We continue to behold the glory of the Lord is in a glass, now the Word of God. And in that way we are being metamorphosed from chrysalis into butterfly, into the same image of Christ, from the glory that begins now in Christ to the glory that is to come, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now that's genuine Christianity. What's counterfeit Christianity? Now follow me. In counterfeit Christianity... There is, first of all, a self-love. The person focuses on sin sometimes and seeks to improve. Perhaps he wants to be a better family man. She wants to be a better mother. Wants to be a better teenager, better young adult. That in itself is deluding because you come to Christ as ungodly. Look at Romans 4 and verse 5. Romans 4 and verse 5. You don't come to Jesus as a moral person wanting to be better. You come to Jesus as a bankrupt person who's hopeless. Romans 4 and verse 5. But to him who does not work. Now, are there works in the Christian life? Yes, we're foreordained unto them. But in terms of our conversion, to him who does not work but believes, lippets on, him who justifies the what? The ungodly. His faith is accounted as righteousness. And in your evangelism, you can do what my associate pastor, Mike Plugman, does in his own inimitable Dutch way. When people come to him and say, Pastor, my sin is, is bad. Mike says, Oh no, it's not bad. It's a whole lot worse than you ever imagined. And he does it lovingly with a smile and then he delights to tell them about Jesus who's greater than all of their sin. Now that's, that's being merciful. But in this case, person out of self-love focuses on sin, wants to improve, sounds good, but because of the duty that's good in itself, wanting to improve, he becomes very self-satisfied and self-righteous. Right? Don't you meet millions of people like that? All kinds of people who do that. Self-help, they've improved themselves. And what does that do? It hardens them. And it's hardening of the most dangerous kind. Rich young rulers, pastor know, pastors know, are the hardest ones to deal with. I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. I'm not a sinner. Romans 10 and verse 3. Israel, ignorant of God's righteousness, sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to the righteousness of God. And ultimately, there is deception, there is discouragement, there is despair, and there is, if there's no heart change, destruction. Now, that's not opposing the effort, but the emphasis or the priority. You begin with the heart that is the foundation. You know, you've got beautiful big mountains out here. You know what our equivalent in New York is? Skyscrapers. They're not quite as big as this. Actually, the, the, uh, this, how high up are we? Oh, this is World Trade Center is 110 stories. We're small in comparison to you. Um, but you know, the World Trade Center, 110 stories up, has a foundation that is bigger than the skyscraper. A one-quarter mile deep foundation. So that thing will stand up. 
Now that's a good lesson when you build the life, and that's Jesus' metaphor, your own Christian life. You make sure the foundation is solid and deep in Christ. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about the foundation. Quotation by Thomas Watson in your little booklet. Civility is a good staff to walk with among men, but it's a bad ladder to climb up to heaven. We would say today morality is a good staff to walk with among men, but it's a bad ladder to climb up to heaven. Now, let me give you a little parenthesis. This is the grave danger in so much of contemporary Christianity. And I don't say this, I trust as someone as an Orthodox Presbyterian looking down my nose at others, but I do it with tremendous grief, as any pastor will. The idea that people have a free will semi-Pelagianism, the idea that man is in completely fallen, legalism, that people can make themselves better by their works, and moralism coupled with a golden calf religion causes people to sit down and eat and drink and play before their own selves. And that's a terrible foundation in which to build. And it's for that reason you and I must stand squarely against any effort to add a stitch to the grace of God in the gospel. Can't do it and ought not do it. Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. Does your Christianity pass that test? It affects your heart. There's a whole change of your life. Does it pass the test that includes the challenge that you lean your whole person on a whole Christ and you are renewed in a whole person after the image of Christ? How dare any Orthodox Presbyterian ask me to search my heart? Paul is my model. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourselves if you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? Now know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are reprobate. My friends, out of conviction of the heart, you come to Christ and you stay there. You don't move. You behold Him from glory to glory and be transformed. You say, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when those temptations the devil puts in your ear of blasphemy and atheism come, that's your answer. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go to get your sins forgiven? God says you've got to be absolutely 100% perfect to get to heaven. And you lovingly drill that into everybody. You don't really mean that. Oh, I really do mean that. God's holiness will never be sullied. He put His Son on the cross so His mercy could kiss justice and neither be compromised. Where else can we go? You have the words of everlasting life and accept no substitutes. My dear friends, genuine Christianity means what? Christ is my prophet. He will teach me. That's why I love that old version of the little children's catechism. Why do you need Jesus as a prophet? Because I am ignorant. That's a good answer. I am ignorant. I need Jesus as a prophet. Why do you need Jesus as a priest? Because I am guilty. Why do you need Jesus as a king? Because I'm weak and helpless, and I rest in him for those reasons. Now, out of that genuine conversion comes mortification of sin, which brings me now to the house. All right, what's the second fundamental rule for the battle? And that is... You must be sincere and diligent in overall obedience in order to truly mortify any one sin. You must be sincere and diligent in overall obedience in order to truly mortify any one sin. Now, let me give you some definitions. and They're written. You can drop down the text. What is overall obedience? Now, if I can't prove this to you from the Scriptures... 
You don't need to believe what I'm saying. Okay, let's have a deal here, okay? If I put this out and cannot show you from a good, reasoned, accurate use of the Scriptures that what I'm saying is true, you don't need to believe what I'm saying. But if it is what the Scriptures say, you better believe it. Okay, so I have to prove what I'm saying. Overall obedience. 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Notice he does not say in here, appropriate all of your resources of righteousness in Christ. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Now, if you drink, you do drugs, you can stay away from those things. Obviously, they can't make you intoxicated or addictive. You can't have them. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body in that way in which God has made up man and woman so that from the time woman is made to complement the man, their sexual union makes them one flesh. When there's sexual immorality, there's something within you you can't get rid of. Now, this is Shisko's opinion. I can't prove it by the Bible, but I'm convinced this is one of the reasons why there's sexually transmitted diseases you can't get rid of. It is God's own emblem in the body that every other sin a person commits is outside the body. It's still sin and still dangerous, but sexual immorality is in a special category. He sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, all of you, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What does that have to do with overall obedience? This. When God ordained there be a temple in the Old Testament, everything in it, right to the very pots and the burnings of the incense were to be holy unto the Lord. God said everything in it was to be holy. And so it's the same thing with the believer. Overall obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he has a new mind. No. If anyone is in Christ, no longer goes to bars. No, that's not what it says. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. The mind is different. Where you go or don't go is different. What you listen to, what you don't listen to is different. All things become new. Overall obedience. I hope I've proved that. And what about sincerity? You must be sincere and diligent in overall obedience in order to truly mortify anyone's sin. Well, there's different words used in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, for sincerity. Matthew 6.22 If your eye is Single is the word in the original, then the whole body will be full of light. Single means it focuses on one thing. Not unclearly. It focuses with 20-20 vision on one thing. Sincerity means single, not double-minded. Or without hypocrisy. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Paul speaks to Timothy about an unfeigned faith. The word is Unhupocritos, not a play actor on a stage. That is sincere. Or guileless. First Peter one, verse twenty two, the chapter two and verse three. Previous reference, first Timothy one five, if you're just there. And now first Peter one, verse twenty two, to chapter two and verse three, where among other things Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, a child like faith. Now that's sincerity, is it? You know, you know what it is when you teach your children. Your children don't sit there and say, you know, does, does the Bible really say this? They believe it because it's what's in the Bible. It's one of the glorious things with children. See, our problem, 
So, you know, some people say, oh, you got to grow up. Well, there's a sense in which that's true. But biblically, you've got to grow down. Jesus takes a little child and says, you know, you've got to become like that little child to enjoy the kingdom. That's why children are such a blessing. That guilelessness, okay? So sincerity or guilelessness. What about diligence? Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Second Peter 1 and verse 5. With all diligence add to your faith virtue and so forth. Diligence means sparing no effort, wasting no time, doing it right now. 2 Peter 1.5, diligence. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. When God worked repentance in the Corinthians, Paul says, you see what diligence it worked in you. You've got a person that's in the study who's got to repent of his sin to his wife. If he says, we're going to have to give him a little bit more time, you say to him, that's not repentance. Repentance is, I need to call my wife right now. I'm going to have her come right now. I'm obedience. And anything less is not saving faith, folks. Anything less is not saving faith. Now there's waxing and waning of it. But if some of that is not true of a person, they're not converted. And it's necessary for mortification of sin. See, let me give you an illustration. The point here is you've got to be sincere and diligent in overall obedience in order to truly mortify anyone's sin. I was speaking with Tony, one of our Marines here today. and Bob Cooey wants to remind you that he's a Marine too. He's got his shirt on today. An army's great too. But let me tell you something. When you train an army man to shoot, and all Marines are taught to shoot a gun, you never train them just train them just to shoot a gun. They've got to run. They've got to exercise their body. They've got to have strong hands. They've got to have body cannot shake. They've got to have fortitude. They've got to have perseverance. They've got to have strength under pressure. Tony, am I right? You don't ever just pull a trigger on a gun, do you? It's that whole well-shaped physique that enables you to go out and shoot the gun accurately. Am I right? Sure. That's what makes a Marine. It's the same thing in the Christian life. Overall obedience necessary if you're going to mortify a single sin. Now, there's an important lesson here. And this is basically Owen's language, and I love the way he puts it. The raging, as he says, of one particular lust is often, if not usually, a symptom of neglect in your overall daily Christian walk. The raging of one particular lust there is that drive for the bottle, that drive to be unfaithful to a spouse, that covetousness you cannot shake, name it, the raging of one particular love, not the momentary temptation, this is something that just threatens to dominate you many, many times, is often, if not usually, a symptom of neglect in your overall daily Christian walk. And to my pastor friends, this is extremely important as you are dealing with believers who come. You've dealt with them. They're genuine believers in Christ. Don't jump to this stuff first. Now you've got somebody who comes to your study and he says, Pastor, I have a problem with homosexuality. I believe in Jesus. But every night I'm with a different man. But I'm a Christian. You say, my friend, the Bible says, whoever is born of God does not live like that. And you go back to the foundation with him. But here is a genuine believer. I think of one dear, precious brother, a genuine Christian, and if he happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, he gets the crack and he goes on his binge. And he comes to the study or to one of the elders, hat in hand again. What's the problem? The raging of one particular lust is often, if not usually, a symptom of neglect in your overall daily Christian walk. What's the usual pattern? Sin erupts, and you deal with the sin. 
But then, in dealing with the sin, you will neglect other areas of the Christian life. Parenthetically, that again is the danger of the seminars that tell you in one day we will tell you how to conquer the problem of the devil's influence in your home because of music and when that problem is conquered everything will be great. Baloney. Because when you focus on one thing the devil's got a magnificent way to go to 150 others. Okay? So a person says I'm no longer going to be proud. I will become a member of Pride Anonymous. Or no longer anger. I will become a member of Anger Unonymous. No longer lust. It will be Lust Anonymous. That's the way I will live. But you know what God's purpose is when you sin? It is to humble you. So you bring your whole self to Christ. That's where you're going if you're a Christian. That's where the Lord wants you to stay. It's not Pride Anonymous and Anger Anonymous and Lust Anonymous. It's Holiness Unanimous in every area of life. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And that's it. It's given to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And that's why, and I want you to understand this and not misunderstand this at all. I'm going to say with guarding it, that is one of God's good purposes in even permitting you to sin. Because when you respond rightly to it, you say, Oh God, I cannot be exalted above measure because of this thorn you put in my flesh of the messenger of Satan. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He said to me, and my dear pastor friends, use this frequently, dealing with those who come to you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, not his sin, but his weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He does not say, I will rather boast in my weakness because now I know the secret to solve it. No, 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 because he still had it but that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. All those things the devil and the world and even the flesh will invite. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And that's what God wants you to learn. When I, whole person, am weak in Christ, I am strong. Now, let me give you some areas of deficiency neglect in our overall daily Christian walk. Now, I have frankly found this to be, of all the material, whenever I've done this, I found this to be the most helpful as a practical thing. We've still got to come tomorrow to hear the stuff. But this I find useful in terms of the Christian life. God has given us a physical realm, an emotional realm, and for want of a better word, a devotional realm. Okay, Don't hang me on biblical psychology here, but for our purposes here, a physical realm, an emotional realm, and a devotional realm. Now, if you're deficient in one or more of those areas, there will be an outcropping of individual sin. Physical, emotional, devotional. I'll give you some examples. Physical realm. 
I know you're all familiar with this. Elijah, 1 Kings 19. Elijah's exhausted. I mean, he hadn't been preaching for a conference. This guy was involved with putting the prophets of Baal to death. And he's got someone who makes Hillary Clinton seem like an angel going after him. Jezebel. And he's in a low. He's exhausted. And we've heard about the Elijah complex. Lord, I'm the only Orthodox Presbyterian around. Everyone else is unfaithful. God sends down a lightning bolt from heaven and says, Elijah, you self-centered prude. God says, Elijah, get a good nap and I'm going to give you some bread. And you get a good rest. That's the physical realm. See how practical the Scriptures are. Psalm 127 and verse 2. I love to say this to ladies after they have a baby. Now, remember, the Lord gives His beloved sleep. You're meant to rest. One seminary professor at a certain seminary would tell his students, the most important element for a holy life is a good night's sleep. That's the physical realm. Psalm 103 and verse 13. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. He knows why you sin. No, He remembers your frame. He knows you are but dust. But the problem with many of us who are type A New York and Los Angeles, California personalities, is we don't think we're dust. But the Lord has wonderful ways to show us that we are. The physical realm. You must take care of the physical realm. That's the importance of kopiao, working hard six days and resting on the Sabbath. No coincidence that when David should have been working out at war, he stayed home and got a break. But he had something, needed something to do. Ah, here's Bathsheba. Mm-mm. Work six days and rest on the seventh. Be an interesting study to see how the various specific instances of immorality, divorce, drunkenness, addiction, so forth, have increased in our land when the work and Sabbath principle has been violated. Very interesting. Okay? So the Lord has even ordained that we rest, that we work, and so forth. Okay? So the physical realm, take care of yourself. And brothers and sisters, let me t- I'll, I'll t- give you a personal illustration. I have the hardest time struggling with my thought life when I'm exhausted. Okay? That's not old man, new man. That's human, folks. I'm tired. So this idiot needs to get some rest. And most of you are like me, not idiots. But you know you struggle with that. Okay, so you get some rest. God didn't didn't make you disembodied spirits, folks. You're weak. You get some rest. You eat. Okay, and so forth. Some of us don't eat as much. Okay. Second in the emotional realm. Let me do this quickly. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Listen to the language of the emotions in the Scriptures. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The Scriptures speak of the bowels, the intestines, the depths of the inmost being poured out in love and affection. The Apostle speaks of agonizing over others, greeting one another with a holy kiss, joy. Clap your hands, all you people. God has made even Orthodox Presbyterians to be emotional people. And people will revert to bad habits in their times of emotional distress. Simple illustration. A man without his wife for an extended period of time used to giving himself to his wife to an emotional and physical outlet has drives that he will have to have satisfied righteously or unrighteously. 
some point I'd love to do with some of you men here something I did up in Maine on the man's emotional life. And it was very interesting. I found out later there were four men in that group who were addicted to problems with the internet and the pornography that's there. In each case, they were men who had serious marriage problems. Now, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. But you see the point. That emotional outlet that should be satisfied with wife, with husband, was not satisfied there. And even for our singles in the Christian church, having singles into the home and being able to hug a single and say, we're so thankful to have you as part of the family. And greeting the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, I know there's a place, you know, lips to lips. Uh Uh-uh, that's out. But a peck on the cheek for a loving a sister in Christ that you love that's done with guilelessness, that's a legitimate form of expression. I don't think greet the brethren with a holy kiss means greet the brethren with a holy handshake. And men, let me tell you something. you got sons. This is where the culture will seek to speak to the church and conform it to its own godless image. You have the proliferation of all forms of the worst perversion in our culture. But you let a Christian man give his son a hug or even a kiss on the cheek and he'll think you're queer. Don't let the world tell you that. You need children, dads, you need sons who know that you can take them and hug them and say, my son, I love you. And Don't you let the world push you into its mold. And dads, you've got daughters who need to learn the legitimate affection of a man who will love her without abusing her. You set the example. You need it, and she does too. And don't let the world's warped, twisted, perverted view of emotions get you. So I love to see the children clapping at it. Do it better than we do with the singing. Enjoy it, your emotions. And then finally, the devotional realm. You devote yourself to God. Be contented in God. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law He meditates day and night. And He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose leaf shall not wither and whatsoever He does shall prosper. And all of that will push out the discontentment and the lust and the frustration that comes. Friends, that's necessary for your own Christian life, physically, emotionally, and devotionally. And then finally, in the three minutes we have left, three directions to help you walk by this rule. Number one, this is in your book, you must hate sin as sin, not just as something upsetting. Hate sin as sin, not just because you've been caught, but because it is sin. Bring it to the law of God and the love of Christ. We don't have time to look at the text, but 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. Peter says essentially that same thing. Bring your sin to the holiness, the law of God, and to the mercy of God in Christ. Number two, you must see all sin as grieving God, even though only particular sins grieve you. Even if you're not particularly bothered by it, it does grieve God. The statement of the publican was not God be merciful to me, a sinner. Pastors, check it out. You Greek. It's God be merciful to me, what? The sinner. You know what that means, Raleigh? That means this man up there looking to God, he says, Lord, it's as if there's nobody else in the world. You know how people are at church? They say, oh, I'm sure glad she's there to hear this sermon. And she's saying, oh, I'm so glad she's there to hear this sermon. The publican up before Jesus lives as if there's nobody else. Oh God, only my sin. God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the way you respond. Incidentally, Augustine 
said the three most important graces in the Christian life are number one, humility, number two, humility, and number three, humility. And that's what that means, okay? That's very good theology. You must see all sin as grieving God, even though it's only particular sins grieve you. And number three, overall obedience must be your goal, not just relief of particular distresses. I'm going to be obedient in all things. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave, me so, gave himself for me. Just by way of conclusion, physical realm. If you have a problem, what do you do? You go to the doctor. The doctor says you need an operation. You need a heart transplant. But a heart transplant is not going to help you unless you clean up your entire life afterward. Got to have a heart transplant first. And we'll start out fresh, but then afterwards you've got to clean up your entire life, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that's exactly what the doctor will tell you. You've got to watch your diet. You've got to be sure you get enough rest. And he'll even tell you to practice yoga. Read the Bible. Uh-uh. You've got to be very careful with that stuff. Yoga, okay. Bible, no. We say yoga, uh-uh, but Bible, okay. All right? Now, if you take the medication and you don't eat and sleep, you're a fool. You've got to take the medication. You've got to eat. You've got to stick up. Overall obedience in order to be healthy and strong after your heart transplant in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, what do you do? Go to the great physician. Lord, I come to you. And Jesus says to those who are unconverted, you need a new heart. How do I get a new heart? Jesus says, I'm the donor. I'll give you my own heart. That's the glory of the great physician. Jesus says also, once you've got a new heart, you've got to clean up the entire life. But Jesus says, I'll be your doctor. I'll be the donor. I'll give you a new heart. The prescription for your life is given in my word. And the wonder of it all is Jesus says, I've got office hours 24 hours a day. They don't even have that in California, let alone in New York. And what is even more, Jesus says, it's all free. Come to me. I'll give you a new heart. Get yourselves a new heart, O house of Israel. Get yourselves a new heart, O sinner. Come to me. Rest all of your weight upon me, and I'll give you life. Please get a break after we pray, and then I would like it if we begin right at quarter to eleven. O Lord God, now we pray that you would not let these seeds sown in this hour be taken away by whatever the devil would send as his own birds. And we ask that we would now refresh ourselves somewhat and come back ready uh, for the very searching material that is before us. And we ask that even in all of this focus upon our sin and our need of grace, may we be reminded that we do these things under the lordship and the saviorhood of our great Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Thank you.